right? It's a privilege as always to be here. here. I was going to say on this glorious morning, but typical. I looked through the window and the morning has changed a lot since I arrived at church uh, today. But it's still a glorious day for us uh, to be together. So um, thank you for being here. Uh, I really pray and believe that the Lord will journey with each one of you as we go through this. Um, I think there was, there was a clear word this morning as well uh, about the Lord really reaching out to each one of us because He knows where each one of us uh, find ourselves. And um, I really pray that your heart will be open for Him to, to hear, uh, for, for you to hear His voice today. Um, as you know, we're carrying on through the series in Luke. Um, and as Ian said last time, it's actually coming up to three years, which quite like make a lot of sense, isn't it? Because that was the time of Jesus's ministry on earth, anyway. So we've kind of st stepped in pace uh, with that quite well. Um, and what we look at today is really just a, a short few verses um, that could we could easily miss the events that that we find um, in between the lines because it's just described in a few verses in all four Gospels actually. We talk about the burial of Christ um, and what happens uh, there but before we focus on that I thought I'll, I'll try to bring you into the events and just recap of where we are and where we got to um, at this point and if you were allowing me to do that and, and humor me for a bit I'm going to try to take you here on an imaginary journey um, just to bring you perhaps to life from where we, where we are today. So if it helps you, you need to close your eyes to, to see the images. <laughs> Go for it. But, okay. So you have just come back. It's Friday. You've just come back from a week away on holiday in the lovely Cornwall or even perhaps Portugal or some other tropical place. And you're just stepping in. You have been away, you've switched off Wi-Fi or mobile data because you really wanted peace and just want to rest. A week of not being connected to the world at all. Over the last three years, you've been on a journey with Ian Lettington and a few other helpers that took you on a journey through an amazing message of freedom that has really settled you into a space of rest, understanding what salvation is about. As you walk into your house, you switch on the telly and BBC News at 6 is just coming up and as you walk past, the headline comes up, Ian Lettington executed. It stops you in your tracks and you say, what? This just happened. And then the reporter continues to give the following report and he says um, on Sunday Mr. Lettington arrived in London to the cheers of an ever-increasing mob of loyal followers, followers of his teaching. On Monday he stormed into the Houses of Parliament and disrupted proceedings there accusing the leaders of um, all kinds of corruption and malpractice. He continued to undermine the authority of the leaders by challenging what they were doing and what they were teaching. This carried on for the next couple of days in London with all kinds of rallies and the mob just growing, continuously challenging and telling people things that they seem to want to hear. The leaders had to take quick action and as it happened, late last night, Ian Lettington 
was arrested, and the authorities moved quickly. They had a bench of judges ready to run a trial during the night, and early this morning, I can report that Ian Lettington was found guilty and sentenced. Humiliated by everyone in sight, he was executed a few hours later, and his family members laid him to rest at the private event, with only a few people in attendance in late afternoon. In other news, the French beat the All Blacks in rugby. So <laughs> you are stopped and you're thinking, what has just happened? I was only away for six days. I was really carrying this message of truth. What has happened with this leader? And folks, that's what we've been on. In the last four to six weeks, we've been on a journey through a portion of Luke uh, with lots of things happening, but it actually only happened in the space of six days. Um, so if we... I mean, my life is fairly busy, and I just read this, and I'm exhausted already for what has just happened uh, in those few days in, in Jerusalem. So, so let's take that picture of the BBC News and we take it back to the time in Jerusalem. And we just reflect on on what we saw there. We saw Jesus coming in on the Sunday, which we now refer to as Palm Sunday, with crowds of people singing praise to God and ringing honor. And yes, on the Monday he went into the temple and he threw over all the trading that was going on there. And he started to teach and he started to challenge. He is being challenged with all kinds of difficult questions which he handled, but constantly he's talking about the judgment day that's coming. Constantly through a number of parables over the next few days, he's teaching about salvation. But at the same time, he's in the face of the leaders all the time because he, he challenged um, their hypocrisy in, in all of that. And then we come to this point in late on Thursday afternoon where um, Jesus and his disciples are settling down for the Passover meal. They retire to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays in agony, as we know. And then late that night, the mob arrives to arrest him. And I mean, so much happens here in a short space. It's so difficult to summarize. But they take him back to the Jewish leaders, um, where the leaders have already gathered in readiness for a trial, as Ian took us through, a trial that was not in accordance with the rules of the day anyway. So they go through that and, and listen to the time frame. I mean, this is happening really just overnight here until they can get to the Roman leaders early morning to get Jesus found guilty and sentenced to death. And this is fascinating that in a space of nine to ten hours from Jesus' arrest, he finds himself on the way to be crucified. Sentenced, found guilty, to be crucified. That is where Jerusalem finds himself at, on this evening, Friday evening, of that week of lying in that. So let's turn to, to the scripture now. We look at the, the part that we're specifically going to focus on today. I'm going to pick it up a few verses earlier just to connect with uh, what Ian spoke about last week. So I'm going to read through from Luke 23, verse 44 to 56. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was the righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good but upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cutting the rock, one in which no one had been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, and saw the tomb, and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. That's our reading for the day. It's, um, I want to interrupt myself just because there's a few things I'm not going to focus on, but I think it's useful to point it out. Um, so we just go back to, not that far, to that. Um, uh, when, when we read about what the people saw, that they went away beating their breasts, I mean, it's, we're not quite sure. Are that in sorrow? Is that in joy that something that happened that they were hoping to happen? Uh, but clearly people are upset or um, find this a, a, a very emotional uh, time. There's also, um, when we read about this verse in verse 55, you know, sometimes you watch a movie, and when you watch it the second time, you see something that you're like, ah, I didn't spot that at the start of the movie, which means something further on suddenly makes sense. This verse, the woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the two men and how his body was laid in it. Quite important for the authenticity of Jesus as the resurrection. Because on Sunday morning they go to the grave where they know Jesus was laid out and he's not there. Um, so anyone that wants to dispute, perhaps they went to the wrong grave. No, they, they were there. They saw what happened there. Little incidents like this uh, that, is, that is quite important. We will dwell on what um, Joseph did here, but I find it fascinating that at least in Luke's version of it, he describes a lot of things in a very few words. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in the tomb. And there's a lot that needs to happen for, for that to take place, and uh, we, will, we will look into that. So, as I said, I mean, there is actually a lot of weight uh, in this moment, in those last few hours on, on this Friday afternoon. Uh, we can't miss the fact that when Jesus died, there were three hours of darkness. That the veil was torn um, and and I always find it so fascinating it's a real privilege to prepare for a day like this because I do a lot of reading in the process and there's lots of people that's trying to uh, say that this is not actually what happened it's symbolic and stuff like that and then it's fascinating to find all kinds of other historical reading and writing that actually confirms these things um, even the Jewish writing writes 40 years later about strange events that happened in the temple 40 years ago. So at the time the temple was destroyed, there was writings that talked about events of 40 years ago, which obviously was about at the time. 
uh, of Jesus' crucifixion. So, so it's just fascinating to see these things happening and seeing God in motion at, at this very, very important time uh, in, in the history of mankind. Um, and then we see Joseph coming in. Now, um, I have to say, when I read through this and I see all of, a lot of important stuff happening, um, I see the response of the people there, and, and we have to emphasize and realize that, that, I mean, there's no indication there that they were expecting the resurrection. So all of Jesus' teaching somehow is up in the air. And, and some way we can't blame them for that. I mean, they've, they've just seen Jesus die in the most horrifying death. His body was beaten to such a state that he was almost unrecognizable. So the journey they've been on for the last three years have come to a point where they just potentially just have lost all hope and said, what has just happened here? But then Joseph of Arimathea comes in and um, there's a few things we know about him. All of the Gospels write about him and I, uh, you find different things said by the, the uh, different writers that sort of fill in the story for us a bit. So we know that he was a rich man. Matthew tells us that. Not too surprised, remember, Matthew was the tax collector, so he can probably spot a rich man a mile away. So he tells us Joseph was a rich man. Both Mark and Luke record the fact that he was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, they go as far in Mark to say he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. Now that, who were they? They were the court of the day. Those were the leaders within the Jewish environment that made sure that all the rules are applied. I mean, they were the bench of judges um, in the time. Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man. That at least was his impression of, of who Joseph was. John says something interesting about him. He says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish people. So here you have someone that believes but doesn't actually want the world to know. So hold on, hold on to that. Hold on to that as we, as we journey along. We also find out that he didn't agree with the decision made by this group of leaders that he was part of. Um, not quite sure in fact whether he just abstained from voting or he wasn't there at all, but it is clear in, in the writings that he didn't agree with what happened there. Um, we also understand that, as I said, he was part of this elite group and therefore quite a prominent person in the, in the community. And it strikes me that this is actually quite incredible and most likely orchestrated by God. Because then we read that he could approach Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. His prominence in society as a Jewish leader most likely gave him access uh, to the leader of the time. A normal person from the street may not have had the privilege of, of getting that audience. Um, so I think that's quite important to see that as well. Um, one could also argue that he's probably responding um, out of duty. I'll fill that in a bit later. But the historical writings tell us that he was actually the great uncle of Jesus. And in the Jewish um, culture of the time, I mean, the family is responsible for the burial of, of family members, the full set of that, no funeral directors uh, at that time to do that. But there's also something, uh, we know this is a man of the law, he understands uh, words and in Deuteronomy 
21 verse 22 to 23, we read the following. If someone commits a sin punishable by death and is executed, and you hang the corpse on a tree, his body must not remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must make certain to bury them that same day, for the one who is left exposed on the tree is cursed by God. So, it is possible, but you will see a bit later, that he does more than just do his duty uh, as a family member. So let's dive into it, and then Jeremy, yes, your three points. Jerry and I spoke the other day about three points or four points for my sermon, so there's just, there's just something that stands out for me for when we start to analyze what happens with Joseph here. So the first thing that happens is he goes public with what he believes. And that's a real risk to me. If, if, if we know who he is as a rich man, as a prominent man, as a man that's part of the council, going public and going to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus, he effectively is most likely risking continuing in his position of prominence. So his social status is about to be destroyed. Um, and remember how important that was in that culture for him. So here we have a man that is observing what's going on around him. We talked about it a bit earlier that John describes him as a, a disciple who was secretly so because of his fear for the Jewish people. He overcomes that fear and says, this is the end of it. I need to speak out here. I need to do what is necessary to go out. I think I see a cowardly disciple here turning into a courageous disciple. Someone that understands the weight of the moment and knows that he needs to do something about it. Remember that the other disciples ran away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter followed, but we don't actually know where they are. They're probably in the crowd somewhere, but they're certainly not coming to the forefront. We don't see anyone else looking after Jesus um, at this time. I see a man that acts boldly, not afraid of what society is going to do. Not afraid of compromising his position. Someone that steps out for what he believes. I see a second thing here. I see that going public is costing him. Um, again, linked to his prominence. Um, as a leader of the Jewish community, that's probably partly where his wealth is coming from. So, losing that prominence is putting that at risk. But also, he um, now needs to fund this old funeral. And this is where something profound happens for me. Because he doesn't just do the normal burial. He asks for Jesus' body. And then he spends a lot of money to buy linen cloth. And John records, in this instance, he had a bit of help from Nicodemus. But they had 75 kilograms in weight of oils and perfumes to prepare the body. He is preparing Jesus like he would prepare a king when he comes. Joseph, I think, steps out here. And he recognizes Jesus as a king. And he treats him as a king. At a cost to him. At a significant cost to him. And then, I think the last bit is just to make it practical and for us to think about what happened in that moment. Um, I was at one point thinking about showing some pictures and as part of my preparation I, did, I watched um, parts of the Passion of the Christ, uh, a movie that was very vividly um, showing uh, the journey of Jesus Christ. But 
it's something that comes with the age restriction, something that couldn't easily show here. But it, but it also made me realize that going public for him here was dirty. Remember that um, he, he needed to remove a full-grown man from a cross. A man that has had a, a, a crown of thorns on his head for a day. A man that had had nails through his hands, nails through his feet. A man that had a spear stuck into the side of his bow. A man that was executed in the, in the way that was done throughout the Roman Empire at the time, to the lowest, lowest, and lowest of society. Those that were opposing the Roman authorities, that's how they died. That's how the slaves died. And no one cared. People on the cross at the time didn't have a burial. They were just left there for the wild animals to sort them out. It's gruesome when you read also some of the Roman history around what happened around Rome, on the outskirts of Rome, where these executions happened. There was no expectation when Jesus was put on the cross that someone would take him out. He was just going to stay there. Now the thing that then really stuck, struck me was that Joseph is doing all of this not knowing about Sunday. We read that he was expecting the kingdom of God. We're not sure whether he believed all of what Jesus was teaching. There was a dispute. That's part of why how Jesus was uh, found guilty was this, this breaking down of the temple and people building that. So there's a lot of controversy about that. We are here today. We are on this side of the resurrection. We know that Jesus had to die. We know that he rose again. Joseph didn't know that. Are we prepared to say, take the same level of risk as what he did on that day, knowing what we know? Are we prepared to, ridic to be ridiculed by society because of our faith? Are we prepared to do, do whatever our Jesus asks us of, of us, regardless of the cost? Are we prepared to experience discomfort, be exposed to the dirt of the world for the sake of the gospel message? I want to tell you a story. I have uh, the privilege of being on a journey with Open Doors. And uh, I don't know whether you know, Open Doors is an organization that uh, ministers to the persecuted church worldwide. Um, and uh, I was at a meeting earlier this week, and the, the president of Open Doors told this story, which is not a story because it's a testimony. Uh, he was there himself. He tells a story about, uh, or his testimony, about visiting um, a village in Indonesia where there were three ladies, uh, one medical doctor and two of her friends, they were Christians, had a small underground church, decided to start to do a, a, a Tuesday fun for the kids in the community. So just an hour and a bit of feeding them, letting them play, giving them a bit of a Bible story. And as it happened, just down the road, there was a large Islamic training center. So, they were very soon attacked and accused of um, doing things against the rule of Allah. And 
And he showed us an amateur video taken by someone who was there on their mobile phone when the court case happened and the lead up to the court case, just those few minutes around. And I mean, the, the attack on those three ladies by the crowds shouting and calling for them to be sentenced to death because they started the playgroup for children. And they sit in this court, and before the court proceedings start, there's chanting from the crowds, um, shouting Allah's name, and just saying that he, he rules and he demands death of these people that, that have um, interfered with what was happening in that environment. The judges there didn't have a choice. They had to find these people guilty. They gave them a three-year sentence uh, to go to prison. So these three ladies go into prison. What they find there is just terrible. I mean, there's human excrement on the walls, and it's just a filthy, filthy place. The first thing they do is they ask the prison authorities for cleaning materials, and they start to clean the cells of the other prisoners. They share their food rations with others that have been in the prison for a long time because they don't think they need it as much. On a specific day, watching the time here, uh, the, the prison warden comes and complains about pain and asks the medical doctor to look after him. And she's saying, I can't, I'm struck off my license because of this, uh, of being in prison. But he keeps on asking for that. Um, she then looks, give him a prescription, they pray for it. A few days later, he's healed from whatever that was. The atmosphere in the prison changed. Now, here's part of the miracle. The authorities in the prison then comes to them, being aware of the Christian church that they have underground, and says, if you want to continue with your church, why don't you invite them to come into the prison? Do your service here and we will protect you. So they then start to run a church in this prison. <laughs> Open doors through the UK government, uh, appealed to the government, uh, government of Indonesia, and they got the ladies released from prison after about two and a half years. Um, they were released on the Saturday. On the Monday, they went back because they now had a church of 47 <laughs> men in prison. There's, there's, there's more detail to it because there's a prayer by these ladies when they go to prison to, for, the, for God to protect the hearts of their children because they've now been, they will be ridiculed for their mother being put in prison. For a medical doctor, a high person in society being struck off because of it. They were prepared to step out, yeah. to yeah. face the risk, regardless of the cost to them. I, um, in, in the same exchange, or actually the day before, I was, um, I was listening to a talk by Tom Holland, um, not Spider-Man, the other Tom <laughs> um, He's a historian and author, I don't know, you know he wrote a book to Minion a few years ago, uh, which I can't recommend yet because I still need to read it. Uh, but part of what he talks about, he talks about the enormous impact of the day of crucifixion on life today. The question he challenged us with on the day was the fact that we need to de-Westernize Christianity and de-Christianize the West. And when he talks about that, it's, it's fascinating to talk another day, but the thing that's struck with me there when people asked him about what it means to us, I mean, he comes out and he says, I don't understand why the church today are not more bold in taking this radical message that has changed the world forever. 
out there. What are we afraid of? Is his question to us. It is the most profound message of salvation and freedom. And it's a message that, I mean, God protects us in that. Yes, there's persecution today, but why aren't we taking hold of that and really stepping up? I'm at risk of being controversial here, but we should not be confused by human rights and um, the rights of minority groups and gender identity and um, political correctness. Our Christian faith teaches us to be kind and care for those who are poor. For the orphans, the widows, those that cannot look after themselves. Those are mar- that are marginalized within society. But let's be clear, it's not so much because they have a right. It's because we have a responsibility. Jesus tells us this. Let's go to the core of the message we have. John 3, 16. We know that that was the plan that God made. He sent his only son so that we can be saved and have life eternal. John 1.12, everyone that calls on his name can be called a child of God. Matthew 22, love God with all that you have. Love your neighbor to self. And then the great commission at the end of Matthew is for us to go out and take that message to all nations. To baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them everything we know. That is what happened on those few days. We will get to the resurrection in the weeks to come. But do you understand what happened with Joseph on that day? He didn't know about the resurrection, but he was prepared to step out, take the risk, take the cost, go public, because I believe he believed. Why are we so hung up by what the world thinks? The message of salvation is real. It is real. We have to take this radical message out there and not be ashamed of it. Let's own it. Let's be bold about it. And you know what? It's really not difficult. I really want to challenge you to find moments to pray for people in this week. Start there. You will encounter someone this week. That is in need of prayer. And you know what? People actually don't mind being prayed for. So just be bold and ask, can I pray for you? And do that prayer. Let us trust Father God that He will give us moments where we can show His love and grace to people around us. We just need to be in His hands and feet. That is just so amazing and still not understandable that He does that and expects us to do that. But He does the miracles. We just need to be there to sow the seed. Before you spend all your money on Black Friday, ask God if there's something else you need to do with the resources He's putting in. Perhaps there's someone that needs that blessing. Are you prepared to bear the cost? I'm going to ask the band to come back and we will close off with a prayer, but I just want to take you here now, and that is to ask you where you are today. Are you prepared to risk your reputation on social media media to speak out for Jesus? Are we prepared to be more bold about what we do? As I said, you can pray for someone at work, at school, or wherever your week takes you. The opportunity is there.
I want to remind you of Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, something that, uh, verses that came to us a lot uh, over the summertime when we were doing church up at uh, Opal. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As I say here on the slide, I, mean, I, I feel that our calling for a living sacrifice should not be described as surrender by the state of the yeah. And the reason is, as I put it, we sometimes think by surrendering it's just cost. And no benefit. Total commitment feels to me like reevaluating what God has done for us. To really believe that and then go for it. Total commitment is not a surrender. Total commitment is full in because of, of what we believe. I want to challenge you to be a Joseph of Arimathea. He identified with his Savior in death. Even before the resurrection, he believed in the coming kingdom. He laid Jesus down in his tomb as a king, and in doing so, risked his reputation and his wealth. Are you going to be a Joseph of Arimathea this week? Let's be bold. Let's be bold and not afraid.